inspired and errant word of God, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, and we are going to be reading from verse 17 through the end of the chapter. And here Peter says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are springs without water, and they are mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. May God add His rich blessing to the reading of His word. Let's ask for His help to understand. Lord, we have sung about Your statutes and how precious they are. And how we long for them. And we pray this morning that you would fill our hearts with a longing and a deep desire to be fed and nourished by the only true bread. Which is the bread which comes down from heaven. Christ and his word. And to that end send forth your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts. That we would understand uh, your commandments and your law. And your revelation. And that we would treasure it. That we would hide it up in our heart. And that we would put it into practice in our life. All this we ask through Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Preachers are often uh, given to excuse making. Uh, Much of it has to do with the length of their sermons or the repetition of the topics that they speak of. But I once heard a preacher uh, talk about uh, a defense for himself because he liked to return to some of the same old themes over and over and over again in his preaching. And one time, to excuse himself, he again in turn appealed to uh, another preacher's example. And this preacher was a revivalist speaker. And on the first night of the revival meeting, he preached on sin with boldness and with great power and unction and leading by the Holy Spirit. So much so that all of the people who were there came by the revivalist preacher after the meeting and they told him how important that message was to them and how convicting and how it had led them to see things in their own life and to repentance and and to, to be renewed in their faith and love for Jesus Christ. And so encouraged by that, the next night the preacher came back to the revival meeting and he preached again on sin. Once again, very similar message to the first night, and yet this time, people were less inclined to come up to him and tell him that they appreciated the sermon, but some, of course, did come up to him and tell him that they benefited from the message. And then the third night, what do you know, the revivalist got back up again, and he preached on the very same theme, the very same subject, sin and condemnation, and this time, no one came forth. Well, the evangelist, the revivalist, was scheduled for four sermons in a series in the revival meeting. And so the fourth night, the revivalist returned and preached on the same topic again, sin and condemnation. And this time, one person came up to him. And it was an elderly old lady who said, even Jesus moved on out to the grave after three days. 
In other words, returning the topic multiple times leads people to be weary of the message. And I'm aware of that as I've been working my way through the Second Peter chapter 2. We are now on our fourth message in a series of messages on false teachers, but the fact of the matter is, this message is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Second of all, this message is profitable. It was not only profitable for them at their time, because the church was under attack by false teachers, but it is profitable for the church today, because as we have noted since our first message on Second Peter, going back to verse 1, there will be false teachers among you, and Peter by that prophesied, that throughout the church age they will come and they will be here and as we look at the world around us in the evangelical church world and the broader church world today we see the evidence of this prophecy coming true and so we focused on the fact that they were here we focused on the fact that they will be judged and we focused on the character of false teachers and today we're going to focus on the effects we're going to focus on the effects of false teachers. In order to do that, I want us to turn uh, into our Bibles this morning. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to begin there. And the first effect that I want you to notice about false teachers is that they leave people unsatisfied and empty. They leave people unsatisfied and empty. That's the first of their effects. And you see that in the description of the false teachers. It says here that they are springs without water and mists driven by storm. Now, in order to appreciate this verse and its context, you have to go back to the ancient Near East and the Middle Eastern setting. Throughout the Old Testament, you will see a number of allusions to spiritual realities, and to allude to those, they will use metaphors such as water and springs and, and so forth. And, and in the ancient Near East, the idea is, because it's a semi-arid, a very hot and a very dry climate, that weary passengers would love nothing more than to be able to see an oasis full of water. Of springs, so that the weary traveler could take a moment, sit in the shade, take their sandals off, and be refreshed by cool water. And yet, it's as if here, this image tells us that they are a mirage. They are an illusion because it says here they are springs without water. There's nothing worse than to be stumbling and hot and thirsty and dry and parched and weary and, and just needing a break only to find out that your hopes have been dashed by the emptiness of a well or mist driven by storm. And that's what the Word of God tells us these false teachers are like. They give all of the appearance of being able to give a satisfying, soul-thrilling, nourishing message. And so they speak with authority, they sound like they have something insightful and wise to say, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But the end of it all is after sitting under the preaching of the word of, of these false teachers, Peter says they are a lot like springs without water. And they leave people empty and unsatisfied spiritually. Well, the word of God proclaims that. And I would argue that statistics confirm that, at least in our own culture and in our own environment. Statistics would confirm for us this morning the word of God that Peter proclaims here, that they leave people unsatisfied and empty. 
And the statistics that I would appeal to is the shrinking of Christianity that is going on before our eyes in North America. And it would seem just the opposite. With the rise of the whole megachurch phenomenon, the appearance would be that when you see all of these very large, highly populated churches with enormous buildings and powerful, charismatic personality preachers, it would give the appearance and it would seem that Christianity is thriving. After all, in the 1970s, there were only 10 megachurches in the United States, and a megachurch is defined as a church with over 2,000 people in membership or in worship on Sunday mornings. And so, just over 30 years ago, there were only 10 such megachurches in the United States, and today there are nearly 1,500. And that would seem, then, that Christianity is on the rise. But then you just break down the numbers. Over 80% of the people who populate and inhabit and attend megachurches come from smaller churches. It's simply transfer growth. And then you add to that fact that on average, every single day, 13 churches in America close. The staggering figure is that over 4,000 churches in America close never to reopen every year in the United States. It's no surprise then that the sum total of people who would claim to be Christians in the year 2007 has dropped dramatically in 20 years. Why? I would argue one of the main reasons why just looking at it from a human perspective, is because when you set people up with the appearance of satisfaction, when you set people up with the appearance of substance, and people become attracted to churches that have all of the bells and whistles, and all of the charismatic, profound, supposedly insightful, engaging, electrifying personalities, and they sit in these entertainment-oriented venues, week after week, they end up finding themselves empty, unsatisfied, looking for substance, hopping from one church to the next, until finally, they become utterly disillusioned about the prospect of finding truth. One of the marks of false teachers and false teaching is that they are springs without water and mists driven by storm. And people end up feeling dejected and empty and unsatisfied and think that that's what it means to go to church and to be a Christian and soon depart from the faith altogether. But secondly here in verse 18, and we're going to spend more time on this, more substantively, we see the effects of false teacher upon the lives of people who would be Christians or at least profess the name of Christ. It says in verse 18, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. And you see the effect here of false teachers outlined again in verse 18 in the word entice. It is a, a word taken from hunting and fishing realm and it just simply refers to false teachers trapping people. 
enticing them, luring them in with the bait and trapping them and then using them for their own purposes. And there are several ways in which they do that. But first notice the target of those who they would entrap. It says in the latter part of verse 18, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. In other words, the target of false teachers is people who are immature in their faith. It could simply be those who are brand new converts, but I think Peter is using an idea that that spreads out beyond that. It simply refers to people who have no rooting and no grounding in the doctrinal truth which is revealed in Scripture. People who haven't yet gone through the catechism. People who haven't yet experienced the Christian life. People who have not yet spent year after year after year applying the commandments of Christ to their life. It's those who haven't matured. It's those who don't have sharpened spiritual sensitivities. It's those who don't, do not yet have a deep and, and a solid discernment in the spiritual things. And so the false teachers go after them. And here's how they do it, Peter says. They entice them with arrogant words of vanity by fleshly desires. Those are two different ways they bait and trap. Two different ways they bait and trap. First of all, he says, with arrogant words of vanity. The word in the original literally is unnaturally swollen words. They speak with unusual confidence. They speak with unusual confidence and they give the appearance of being wise and insightful and perhaps even professional in the way they go about their business. And when people hear that tone of confidence, it resonates with them. Who isn't looking for somebody who seems to be telling the truth? Who isn't looking for somebody who seems to have an organized system of Christian living? Who isn't looking for somebody who seems to really have studied and and shown themselves to be approved, who can lay out the truth before God's people, that thereby they may gain wisdom and insight? It's kind of like going to the doctor. You have these aches and pains going on throughout your whole body and you're feeling miserable and and your mind begins to race. Could it be this? Could it be that? And you, you click onto WebMD and you read about all the horrible things that it could be, right? And so you go into the doctor and they run all kinds of tests and blood tests and scans and x-rays and, and then they sit you down and say, well, I think I've found your problem. You just have a cold. And you say, but what about this problem? What about this ache pain? What about this feeling that I have? What about this sensation? What about this pain? And the doctor looks at you with, with utter and complete confidence. And he says, you have a cold. And there's something about the reassurance that you, that you experience and you feel when, when the professionals finally speak and they say, we, we have done all of the testing that we can do and we have determined that it's simply a cold and you feel strength and encouragement from the confident tone. That's how these people speak. 
That the only problem is the message which they speak has nothing to do with the truth of the Word of God. Because secondly, it says they entice, not simply with arrogant words of vanity, which really means of no significance at all, of no weight at all, even though they sound confident. Secondly, it says they entice by fleshly desires. In other words, they appeal to exactly the kinds of insecurities and desires that you have. Whatever propensity towards selfishness that you might have, whatever felt need that you think you might have, whatever deficit might be revealed on a personal self-inventory test you take, they begin to, to... Look at those things to sharpen and focus the message down to those things. And they speak to exactly what your sinful heart desires. As we've been working our way through this series on false teachers, I have refrained from from citing over and over again one fact after another from one false teacher after another who seemed to dominate the landscape and the headlines today. But I finally said, now that we boiled this message down to the effect of false teachers, it's time to talk about and to illustrate by way of example what is going on in the broader church world today so that we understand, not just to be saying mean-spirited negative things about churches and, and teachers around us, but so that we are able to perceive the false teaching and the way it is presented as people are being attracted to these churches. And of course I was going to turn to the regular suspects and partners in crime, the Joel Osteens and the Robert Schulers of this world, but I decided to do something different as I looked over and thought through this. I, I, I got the, the silly idea, I guess, to Google up the words cool church. I don't know exactly why I did. It was just on a whim and I thought, well maybe there'll be something there. Because everywhere I turn, it seems to me that Christianity is being packaged up as cool. And let's face it, almost all of us aren't cool. I don't think any of us here are probably cool this morning. But don't you want to be cool? When you're in junior high, don't you want to be like all the cool people at school? So you dress like the cool people, and you talk like the cool people, and and you try to sound like the cool people, and you listen to cool music, and you watch cool movies. And so that's being uh, reproduced now in the church world today. We have cool church. And so I googled in cool church, and guess what I found? There's a church that's actually called the cool church. And on the website, here's what I found. They are one of the fastest growing churches in America. It has four convenient locations, and right on the front of the website is a picture of this bleached blonde, mohawk, tattooed, tanned, pierced, buffed up, cool looking guy. And I thought, cool, they brought in a model. It's the pastor. And here's what the pastor said about the cool church. He talks about their music. He says, they sing a song, fifty over 50 songs from four CDs. And of course, he wrote them. And they have a great band that says, gives a very cool concert feel. And my teaching is practical and illustrated by props, movie clips, and a lot of laughs. See, that's what you've got to have. You've got to have a lot of laughs. 
And then I scroll down the website, and just curious, why is this church so cool? And they even ask the question themselves, well, what makes cool church cool? And among the several reasons listed is, one, the cool church is cool because God is way cool. And second of all, the cool church is cool because God's principles are cool. Well, encouraged by that result, I said, well, what the heck? Let's throw caution to the wind. Let's Google up cutting-edge church. Again, just for laughs, and what do I find? Here's an article on how to be a cutting-edge church. And one of the key ingredients of being a cutting-edge church is that you don't sound like you're a place of judgment or of guilt or of condemnation. Well, I guess the Bible's not going to be preached there. The website had a survey for pastors to take and church leaders so that they could lead their church into being cutting edge and cool. And one of the questions is, what is your pastor like? Straight as an arrow? Traditional but hip? The third category is, wears tattoos and piercings and plays in a band? None of those, so I guess we're out of luck for being a cutting edge church. The cutting-edge churches are supposed to have art galleries and special creative communities. I mean, I'm just looking at this stuff and I'm saying, how in the world can, can you ever come up with this stuff and read your Bible? Cool church, cutting-edge church, fun church, laugh-a-minute church. But doesn't it fit so well with the description here in verse 17? There are springs without water, misdriven by storm. And then verse 18, they speak arrogant words of vanity, words of absolutely no significance, but they speak them with boldness. They appeal by fleshly lusts. Who doesn't want to be cutting edge? Some of you may think, well, that's just a few crazy churches out there. So I did another Google search to find out about churches around us. One of the churches, very, very, very prominent, very, very, very large, and very near to us, geographically, not doctrinally was described as follows. The service was composed of four main segments. It began with some opening words about it being a day to remember those who had died. I think that's in the Bible somewhere. And this led into the first segment of the service with an audio-video presentation of pictures and short clips of people who had died in the last year. The second segment was a bunch of hymns and choruses. And then the third was an interpretive dance by a young lady dressed in a white ballet dress with a smoke machine blowing smoke across the stage with colored lights changing back and forth. And she danced across the stage for several minutes to the song, I Can Only Imagine. I'm not in the church bashing here today, people of God. What I am doing is I'm trying to get down to the issues that are very relevant around us that emerge from 2 Peter and are an admonition to us. 
We ourselves must not be the kind of people who are, who are enticed by arrogance, we're arrogant words spoken in confidence. And we are not to be the kind of people who are enticed into churches that are light on doctrine and long on being cool. But unfortunately, this is what I continually uh, hear when I talk to people about coming to church. What cool stuff do you have? The temptation will be for us to be cool, trendy, fad-like. Putting our finger in the wind and testing what's out there and deciding how to, how to build a bridge into some community out there of cool people or interesting people or cutting-edge people. The problem is with that is that is exactly out of the playbook of false teachers. We are not to be the kind of people who speak arrogant words of no significance with boldness. We are not to be the kind of people who speak to people's fleshly desires and reinforce them in, in their own sense of understanding which is completely unbiblical. And thirdly, these people entice and trap people in by verse 19. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. It's not surprising at all that the message was tailored to sinful desires of fallen men. They promised them freedom. It appears that they had been twisting the words of the Apostle Paul because you see at the end of, of 2 Peter chapter 3 Verses 15 and 16 where Peter says, In regard to patience of our Lord of salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him who wrote to you, as also in all of his letters speaking them these things, in which some are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort. And it appears that they had taken the Apostle Paul's message of Christian liberty and distorted and twisted into a message of radical liberty. Because you are not constrained by God's commandments. You are not constrained by Scripture alone to what you believe. You are not constrained in your worship to worship as God commands. You are not constrained in your church life to do church as Jesus Christ has commanded in a way that honors Him. No, you do it however you like. You pursue whatever lust or sinful desire or form of living that you like because you are in Christ radically free. The only problem with that is you look at the end of verse 19. Peter tells you exactly what happens to people who live according to that notion of unbiblical and radical freedom. He says, for by what a man is overcome, he is enslaved. By what a man is overcome. He is enslaved. You think about that, and that is one of the most terrifying verses that you'll ever read in the Bible. And if you think about that for a moment, you'll begin to realize that is exactly what Satan whispers into the ear of every person. You're free. Break through the taboo. Break through all of the cultural list of don'ts 
disrespect authority. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Don't be constrained in your life. That's just a tool of oppression that people in authority use to keep you down from really enjoying life. Satan says, roll the dice, do what you want. Enjoy yourself. But you know what Satan never says? Is by the thing that you overcome, you will be enslaved to. And nobody thinks about that in advance, do they? Oh, sometimes we're afraid of the consequences before we break God's law. Sometimes we think, oh, but I don't want the pain that is associated with that. But then all of a sudden we try it. One day on a whim, in utter boldness and confidence and with abandonment, we really, we, we, we finally end up trying it. And guess what happens? didn't end. The sky didn't fall. You weren't struck by lightning. You felt good. And you know what? You didn't even have a conscience that bothered you. And so you thought through all the consequences and you heard all these, there were, there were terrible effects to giving your soul to, to the abuse of drugs or of alcohol or of sex or of greed or materialism or anger or, or whatever problem you have, whatever idol you would like. And, and it didn't bother you. It didn't seem to affect things negatively. In fact, you ended up feeling good. And so what did you do? You went back to it. Peter says, here's what radical freedom ends up doing. It ends up radically enslaving. By what a man is overcome. By that, he will be enslaved. I see a lot of drunks every day. That's the only person I'm going to pick on this morning. If I don't pick on a particular stereotype group, it's because I don't see them as much as I see drunks. But I see a lot of drunks every day. The worst kind of drunk to see is the person who is 60 years old and has been spending all morning long connecting cans and they turn them in at the local supermarket and they bring in a handful of quarters and buy a couple of bottles of the cheapest booze they can buy so they can get hammered. And they do it every day. By what a man is overcome, he will be enslaved. It's not pretty to see somebody at 10 o'clock in the morning buying cheap booze and they have vomit all over their shirt. Satan promises freedom. Satan leads people to slavery. 
But Jesus is very different. Jesus does not promise the illusion of freedom. Jesus secures it and He gives it. Jesus says, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Whatever sin it is that you're struggling with here, the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter to me that you were promised liberty when you began your sin. It doesn't matter to me that it didn't feel painful, it didn't hurt, it didn't seem to have a bunch of negative consequences. The fact of the matter is, once you're entrapped in it, there's no way out except for through Christ. And if you're struggling this morning with being enslaved, and I don't know what it is, it could be pornography. It could be that. It's a very common problem in churches. Nobody talks about it. It could be pornography. You could be hooked on pornography happened. You could be stuck in an immoral relationship and nobody knows about it except for you. You could be there. I don't know that because I don't watch you. You could be stuck in greed. Greed up to your ears. And worse is you may be a Christian. I want you to know this morning if I have described anyone here this morning that the same person you came to and found salvation at the beginning of your Christian life can still free you today. Sinners do, or rather Christians do, stumble and fall. And the Word of God this morning promises that if you repent of your sin, and you have to do that, you're not going to find liberation unless you repent of your sin, confess your sin, hate your sin, and crucify your sin, and come to Christ for the forgiveness of it. There is freedom for it. So if you're stuck in that condition this morning, and you're embarrassed, you're afraid, and I call you this morning to come into Christ, a sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted in all points like you, yet without sin, who promises liberation from it. There's a third effect here that we want to look at finally in verses 20 through 22. A third effect of false teachers. They scorch the soul and make it barren. See, they they start with leaving you empty and unsatisfied. They then attempt to fill it with things which would appeal to your own fallen fleshly desires. And then the last effect is they leave you spiritually barren and scorched over. Verse 20 says, For if they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, and are overcome. 
the last state has become worse for them than the first. And then he goes on to amplify that. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. And then the very vivid proverbial illustration. As a dog returns to its vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Here is the barrenness that is the ultimate effect of false teachers. It would have been better for them to have never have known the truth of Christianity. What a remarkable contrast. It starts out so well. They escape the defilements of the world. That is talking about conversion. You see that in verse 18 you have a parallel idea. Those who barely escape the ones who live in error. It's about conversion. Or it's described differently back in 2 Peter 1 verse 4 where it says, Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You see it starts out so well. With the appearance of conversion, with the appearance of freedom from sin and from its entanglements and its defilements and its corruption and its disfiguration upon the soul and its distortion and twisting of the creation that God has made. It starts out so well, having escaped all of that. A life that was once full of despair and anxiety is, is now replaced with a life of joy and of peace and, and living in harmony and trusting in God. It started out so well. But then he says it would have better if they had not known the way. It appears that Peter is drawing on a parable which Christ told, and it's back in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. You can go look it up later, but Jesus talks about it. And Jesus talks about somebody experiencing the, the blessing of having Satan dethroned from his heart. Of an exorcism, of, of having a demonic spirit, an influence that has captivated somebody's soul, finally being cast out. And he talks about that's the first state. They were enslaved and now that was taken away. And then Jesus talks about the fact that if that is not replaced, if that emptiness and that void which was once filled by demonic oppression is not refilled again. Then he goes on to say that that same spirit comes back with seven spirits worse than himself. And what he says then is that the last state is worse than the former. Peter here picks up on that parable and he applies it to the effect of false teachers and he says their last estate is even worse than when they didn't know Jesus Christ, when they weren't walking in obedience to commandments, but they had never experienced the light of the knowledge of the gospel. It's sad, but it's true. The Word of God talks about this. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about people who have, who have been enlightened, who have been illuminated from above, who have tasted the good word of God, who have experienced some spiritual change in their life. 
But then again, only to fall away. And when they fall away and do not replace that with Christ again, it leads to greater ruin, to greater devastation, to greater spiritual hardening, to greater blindness, to greater enslavement to sin. What a warning to the church. What a warning to people who would teach the truth. That they better teach it biblically. What a warning to Christians who have had the privilege of sitting in church and hearing the Word of God expounded. That they never be the kind of people who once tasted the Word, who once experienced the blessing of the fellowship of the saints, who once knew what it was to experience, at least at a superficial level, liberation from sin and yet turn away from it. I'm going to say first of all with a series of applications that will bring our message to conclusion this morning is that true Christians cannot apostatize. And I don't want to totally undermine the sense of security that you have if you are in Christ. Jesus says it as plain as day in John chapter 10 that no one can pluck them out of his hand. It is not true that a true, regenerate, justified Christian can escape God. But there are people who are Christian in name who can have a superficial yet profound and powerful sense of of the working of the Holy Spirit within them can turn away and can abandon the faith. The problem is, you don't know who they are. The problem is, even if it's you, if you have the workings of this sort of, um, of spiritual abandonment in your life, if you have the workings of, of this spiritual stumbling in your life, you ought not first say, well, once saved, always saved. And give no thought to it. If you see those those workings within you of apostasy and of moral failure and of turning from God and from His Word and not taking joy in Christ and not repenting of your sins, you better be very concerned today. Not quickly just rush to appeal to, I'm in Christ. I hope you're in Christ. But when you see the markings and the workings of apostasy in your life, it's time to repent. It's time not to allow those to go on for one second longer. If you're not alarmed over your sin this morning, there's a problem. If you're not daily confessing your sin unto Christ and fleeing unto Him as a refuge for forgiveness of sins, there's a problem. If you are not delighting yourself in your justification, there's a problem. If you are not joyful in Christ this morning, there's a problem. If you're finding yourself hit and miss in the worship of God week in and week out, there's a problem. We have to beware of an empty house. We have to beware of an empty house this morning. Christ, by His Spirit and His Word, is not filling your soul and seeking to dominate your life. The lusts of the flesh are taking the upper hand and manipulating and controlling and outmaneuvering you spiritually. There's a problem. 
And the more you empty your heart of God's Word and of God's rule and the influences of the Holy Spirit, the worse it becomes for you. I plead with you this morning, not wanting to to overemphasize this in a heavy-handed kind of way, I would love to be able to assume here this morning that absolutely every single one of you are in completely steady, level, solid ground in your relationship with the Lord. But the fact of the matter is in a room of people even this size, I know there are people here this morning who are struggling and they may have the biggest smile on their face of all. Please hear the word of God. If God and His influences through the Holy Spirit and His Word are being emptied of your soul, beware of leaving your soul neutral. There's another warning in here for us as the people of God, and that warning has to do with our life. I want you to see what a profound and powerful effect a life has on other people. We've been studying the characteristics of false teachers. We've been studying the condemnation of false teachers. We have studied the presence of false teachers in the church. And we finally get down to the last part of it. And that is the effect of false teachers. But I want you to notice something as you think your way back through chapter 2. I want you to consider how many times Peter has appealed to the false doctrine of the false teachers. How many times? None! What has he appealed to? The life. The life of false teachers. They mediated the effect of their false doctrine through their life. We tend to think of apostasy as nothing more than doctrinal aberration, and it certainly is that. But apostasy, more times than not, is not overt, open, doctrinal unsoundness. It's apostasy of life. It seems that people are always affected at the first level, not by your words, but by your life. What a profound and important warning for us here as the people of God. If you want to make people around you immune to the truth of God's word, you just let your life go. Your life will speak powerfully and profoundly to the people around you. What a call for us this morning. What a call for us as God's people to take every effort to get hold of our life. Aren't you thankful for what Christ has done for you? Aren't you thrilled and overwhelmed with joy at the knowledge of the forgiveness of your sins? Aren't you absolutely thrilled today to know that the Holy Spirit lives within your heart and He animates your entire being, your emotions, your desires, your will, your your appetites, everything. Aren't you thrilled to know that? If you are, you're called to, to a life of godliness and a life of obedience. 
a life of taking that wonderful knowledge and news that Jesus saves to people around you. But I want to warn you this morning, people of God, you will never do that if your life is out of sync with your doctrine. And I plead with you this morning that you study your catechism and you study the Word of God that you work to apply the messages that come from the Scripture to your life. But I plead with you as well, don't just furnish your mind with substance. Fill your life and the outworking of your life with the doctrine that you believe. Live as new creations in Christ. Live as people submitting to the Word of God. Live as people who walk in the real liberty of Jesus Christ, which is a liberty not to disobey, but the liberty of being able to obey God without the constraint of sin weighing you down and enslaving you constantly. That's the liberty of Christ. As we see the terrible effects and examples of false teachers, We must not simply look at the world around us and name all of the bad people in the name of Christ who are out there bringing reproach upon Him. But we're to turn to ourselves, to our own hearts and to our own lives, and to apply the messages here. That God has called us to be a people who bring positive and powerful effect upon others. Through spirit-led, spirit-prompted, joyful obedience to the Word of God.